This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, we are continuing series of studies in the Psalms of Ascent, or the Pilgrim Psalms. Today we're looking at Psalm 126, verses 1 through 6. It's page 517 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the Word of God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream, that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. When the set among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for its faithfulness. And Father, as we study this morning, we pray for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we acknowledge our need of your grace and your spirit to understand your word, to apply it. And Father, we pray for that, pray for your blessing on your word as it is preached to your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Humility is one of those things that's best pursued indirectly. To concentrate on humility is to concentrate on yourself, which is one surefire way to kill humility. Uh, humility, after all, as we see it in the, in the Bible, doesn't so, mean, so much mean that you, you think yourself to be a bad person and you think terribly about yourself. It really is more the sense that you think about yourself not at all. You're thinking of other people. You're looking at other people. You can have a terrible self-image and be anything but humble. Humility is best acquired when it is pursued indirectly. You may be the last person to know that you are characterized by humility, if indeed you truly are. Uh, I remember Roy Taylor, my former pastor, our state of clerk at PCA, once said, uh, you know, it's no fun being humble when nobody notices. Uh, well, if you're bothered that no one notices, then you've missed somewhere along the line, you've missed humility. It's best achieved indirectly. Joy is much the same. Joy is most achieved when it is pursued indirectly. That's where so many people go wrong. They want joy in their life. Who doesn't want joy in his life? Of course we do. But if you set out to pursue joy in your life, more likely than not, you're going to miss it. People look for joy in all kinds of ways and all kinds of things and all kinds of people And when they do that, they find they tend to come up short. You see, joy is best pursued in the pursuit of other things. It's best found when we're pursuing other things. Jesus put it this way in Luke 9. 
He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For, he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, whoever is pursuing his life, or an aspect of it we call joy, is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, what Jesus is saying there as it pertains to joy is this. Joy is found not in pursuing joy, but in pursuing Christ. Joy is found not in pursuing joy, but in pursuing Christ. Now, as we come to Psalm 126, the word that comes to my mind when I read this psalm is ebullient. I don't know if you know that word or not, but it's a great word for this psalm. Uh, its root meaning in Latin has the idea of boiling, but by derivation it has the sense of overflowing with excitement, overflowing with enthusiasm, overflowing with exuberance. And that's what this psalm is about. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, you know they're about a lot of different things. Some of them are psalms of lament. You know, someone said that the, the Psalms are that one part of God's Word that doesn't speak to us, but speaks for us. Now, Psalms does speak to us, but there is a sense in which Psalms give us words to express the, 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 the most profound experiences of human life. And sometimes those Psalms of lament say what we want to say when we really are at our lowest. Uh, they give us words to say when we want to praise the Lord. Uh, sometimes in our prayers, we so quickly go to asking God for things that simply to pray in praise and thanksgiving can be difficult. Well, the Psalms give us the words to do that. You can read something like Psalm 145, and you're just praising the Lord. You take those words and make them your own. Sometimes there's Psalms that express fear. Uh, we started out earlier in this series, for example, uh, Psalm 120, In my distress, I call to the Lord. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? But the Psalms also give us words to say in joy. And that's true of Psalm 126. It is an expression, if we dare say, simply of giddy exhilaration, of giddy joy in what God has done. And yet, even there, uh, the joy is tempered just a little bit. Because the Psalms, if anything, are realistic. And even, the, the, even the, the heights of delirious joy that we experience in this world, because it's a fallen world, that joy is always tempered a little bit. It will never be untempered by some difficulty until we're in glory, until we're in heaven. This side, even the greatest heights of joy will always have something that tempers it, something that causes us to say, yes, but... And that's true in this psalm as well. So let's look at it now. It tells us a couple things about where Christian joy is rooted. As God's people, where our joy is found, where it's rooted. First, we find it's rooted in the experience of God's past restoration. In other words, God's past work in our lives is a source of joy in our lives. We see this in the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 3. It begins... When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, what is that restoration that he's referring to here? Well, if you look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, there are a number of occasions that could be referred to. 
situations where they appeared doomed and the Lord delivered them, situations where there was sin and yet the Lord forgave them, was merciful toward them. Could be any number of occasions, but the one that seems to fit the most is is one of the biggest of all. And that is when the Lord brought his people back out of exile to Jerusalem. You recall how 586 Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Uh, many of the people were taken out to Babylon to exile. That's where you find Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and those. Uh, but then after 70 years, their time was complete. And you read about in Ezra and Nehemiah how they start to go back to Jerusalem and start to rebuild the temple uh, and rebuild the walls and get the city going again. And that could well be what is being referred to here, that time of coming back from exile. Some 70 years, only the very oldest would remember Judea, would remember Jerusalem. For many of those, this was was something they heard about, but never thought they would see. And yet the Lord is bringing them back. Whichever event in the Old Testament it was, it seemed too good to be true. He says, we were like those who dream it, it, it almost it had to be a dream. This was too too good to be true. This was something too outlandish to think that it actually is happening. It seemed like a dream. We we know of other occasions in in Scripture uh, that seemed too good to be true. Of course, the the biggest one of all was the resurrection of Jesus. That that their their leader, their savior. Uh, their, their Messiah, who had been crucified, was in the grave, would appear again. And so much so that uh, we read in John 20 how, uh, how Thomas, who heard about Jesus appearing to the other disciples, refused to believe it. Not because he didn't want to, but because he knew dead men don't come back from the grave. It was just too good to be true. He certainly would have wanted it to be true, but you know, you know his famous declaration. You know, unless I see the the and touch the the wounds in his hands and the the wound in his side, I will not believe it. And of course, Jesus appears to him uh, and invites him to investigate the evidence. And Thomas doesn't need to do that, as far as we're told. He doesn't do that. He simply says, "My Lord." And my God, I'm sure that event to Thomas seemed like a dream, yet it was real. One, perhaps not quite such a uh, magnitude, but maybe a little more humorous. We find in Acts chapter 12, uh, not so humorous. James had been arrested and been executed. Peter had been arrested and most likely faced a similar fate. And the church gathered in a private home, was praying urgently for Peter and for his deliverance. When the angel comes and, and brings Peter out of prison and he goes and he goes to the door of the home where they're meeting, and he knocks on the door and the servant girl comes and answers the door and apparently just leaves Peter there at the door and runs in and says, it's Peter, he's here. And they said, you're out of your mind. Why? Because I didn't want Peter there? No, because it was too good to be true. It would seem like a dream. And yet Peter was there. It was real. He had been delivered in answer to their prayers, and they were so slow to acknowledge the reality that God answered their prayers so quickly. 
and their reaction. He says, verse 2, it was like a dream, but we realized it wasn't a dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Because they realized this was real. This was the work of God and there's great joy. And notice, not only did God's people acknowledge it, the nations acknowledge it. Then they said among the nations, we go from our mouth to they said out there among the nations. I don't think he's talking about God's people among the nations. I think he's just saying those who are of the nations. They said the Lord has done great things for them. Even the nations were forced to acknowledge God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's deliverance, God's provision. You know, you, you go into the New Testament and... Uh, Jesus says much the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, even there in this psalm where the nations acknowledge the goodness of God. Jesus speaks of the same thing uh, in Matthew 5 or 16. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That should be true of us, that, that our joy in Christ, the evidence of God's work in our lives should compel even unbelievers to say, you know, there's something real here. Something is going on uh, in our lives. You see that in Scripture in different places, and we should see that in our own day, that even the nations are forced to acknowledge the work of God, the goodness of God. So the experience of God's past restoration is a source of joy. And we think about what is that for us? Well, as we think about it, and look at it, we would have to say, you know, we look back not to some deliverance from exile in Babylon, but work of deliverance from exile and sin through the cross. There supremely in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, our joy is rooted. Our joy is anchored in that past work of God where Christ bore our sins, died for our sins under the judgment of God, was raised up, securing our justification. And we are redeemed in him to be right with God, to have your sins forgiven. Seems like a dream, but it's real. And of course, more recently, the outflow of that, your own personal conversion. Now, we have as many different ways of coming to know Christ as there are people in this room. God works in different ways. There's no set pattern or time in which he draws someone to Christ. Some of you, uh, some of you children know and follow the Lord now, and you always will. Some of you came to Christ later on in life as adults. Um, for some, grace is preventative, like a vaccination, keeps you from sin. Others, grace is uh, medicinal. It cures you. It heals you of the scars and the, the, the aches and the pain of sin in your life. So God's grace comes at different times, but we look at God's drawing us to himself and forgiveness of sins and even even victory in dealing with sin in our lives. We say it's like a dream, but it's real. And there's joy in that, recognizing objectively what God did in history through Christ and then objectively and subjectively what God has done in you as he drew you to faith in Christ. And you say, we're like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue with shouts of joy at what the Lord has done in our lives. And people say, you know, the Lord's done great things for you. And we have to acknowledge it. Verse 3, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. You see, because of God's work in the past, we can say we are glad. There is joy. 
Joy does not mean that we don't suffer. Joy does not mean that we don't have times of heartache. Joy does not mean that we don't have times of struggle or even wore down. But joy is rooted in God's past work of restoration. And nothing can undo that. And therefore, ultimately, nothing can undo or remove, take away our joy in God's work of restoration. So that's the first source, the first uh, root for the experience of joy is what God has done in past restoration. But it's tempered. There, there's this exhilaration. Our mouth was, we just couldn't help just laughing. Our tongues just couldn't help but shout for joy. But we're still in a fallen world. We're not yet in glory. And so we read in verse 4, immediately going to prayer, restore our fortunes, O Lord. You see, this brings us to the second point. The experience of God's past restoration secures our joy, but also the prospect of God's future restoration. Our joy is rooted in that prospect, that anticipation of God's future restoration. Because immediately he turns to the future. Lord, restore our fortunes. So even though things had been done, they still were in need of restoration, still in need of God's ongoing work. You know, it's interesting. You read about the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, getting things going again. And it says those who remember the former temple wept. No doubt for joy. But they might also have been weeping some because it just didn't compare. There was, there was, there was a little bit of a ludicrous element in the restored temple that was only a shadow of its former grandeur. And there were people who were so at home in Babylon, they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. It was a restoration, but if you look at the prophecies and the prophets and you look at what actually happened, you kind of go, mm, maybe a little bit, but not quite. There was still more to come, of course, more in Christ. But even for us, there's more to come. As much joy as there is in Christ now, it is tempered with the pains of this world. And so joy is rooted not just in acknowledging God's past work of restoration, but what yet lies ahead. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev, or Negev, was the southern region of Judea. It was a, a desert region, arid, dry. And yet, there were dry stream beds or wadis that ran through it. And when rains would fall to the north, the water would run rapidly down those courses. Flash flooding would take place and vegetation would grow because of this water that had rapidly arrived. Within days, the, the scene could be transformed. Restore our fortunes like those streams in the Negev. Come into the desert of my life, Lord, in your grace and bring life. Restore our fortunes. There's a similar prayer you find in the book of Acts uh, where we pray that times of refreshing would come from the Lord. Acts 3, verse 19. As Peter's preaching to the crowds, he says, Repent, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, 
Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Times of refreshing, the water running until that time when Christ comes back and restores this world to its glorified and sinless condition. Think of that image of God's grace pouring like water into the dryness of our souls, bringing life, bringing refreshing, bringing restoration of our fortunes. So we're looking forward to that in this life, but ultimately, of course, with the return of Christ. We, we, we will experience that, should Christ tarry, when we pass into glory. But ultimately, we will experience to the full at Christ's return. Uh, as Peter said, pray, repent, seek him so that those times of refreshing may come in our lives until that time when Christ comes and restores all things. And then he goes on in 5 and 6 to use this agricultural image. You know, any farmer is delighted to see water coming his way. Not too much, but the water is necessary. So the crops don't dry dry up and go away. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a principle for living in this life. There's joy, absolutely, because of what God has done in the past, because of the anticipation of what he's doing in the future, but it's tempered. We get sick. We suffer loss. We suffer heartache in this fallen world. But the Lord promises us this, that those times of tears, those who sow in tears, those who go out weeping in Christ will reap with shouts of joy. That even the tears of pain in this life, God sanctifies, He recovers, He restores. That even our suffering in this life produces joy in our hearts and ultimately in our circumstances, in glory, in Christ. That there is no suffering we undergo that's random or meaningless or pointless or lost. But God redeems it for our joy and for His glory. Or to put it in terms of Christ's own life, first the cross, then the crown. The cross produces the crown. Suffering in our life yields glory and joy later. Some of the Christians, some of God's people who have known the most joy in this life, have also known the most heart-rending and perhaps body-racking suffering in this life. It's precisely in the suffering, redeemed in Christ. Not that suffering is good in and of itself, but suffering in Christ, looking to Christ, that his joy comes down like streams in the desert to bring refreshing. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Even in the suffering, we look to Christ and look for his joy rooted in what he's done in his past restoration and in the prospect of that future restoration to come. You see, the problem so often for people, and sometimes even Christians, is that we pursue joy directly rather than experiencing it as a byproduct of seeking and pursuing Christ. Another problem with joy is that our desire for it is too often easily satisfied. 
or at least for a little while, but not long term. You may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, well-known quotation about joy, about our desires. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Don't be too easily pleased. Don't be too easily and quickly satisfied pursuing joy through pursuing Christ. Be satisfied with nothing less than the joy that comes from having experienced God's past restoration in Christ and the prospect of all that lies ahead for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for pursuing joy and not pursuing Christ. Father, we pursued joy and found it elusive. Give us grace to pursue Christ. Not even thinking of ourselves, but Lord, thinking of Christ, thinking of all that he is, thinking of all he has done for us, thinking of that glory that is to come, thinking of the needs of others around us and their need for Christ in different ways, for his mercy, for his grace, for his wisdom. Father, help us as those who follow Christ to one day realize that we're filled with joy, not because we sought it, but because we sought you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.